you know, you look at the data like the Southeast, for example, has the greatest shortage of mental health professionals or psychologists. And so the impact of compacts, I think, is really compelling when we think about how that could, you know, close some of those gaps. We won't be able to completely resolve the shortage of mental health professionals in the country. But, you know, when I do the analysis across states that are part of the psychology compact, we could actually close that gap by 65 percent. Hey, what's up, guys? Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSight. Enjoy today's episode. All right. Well, I think we can even talk about all the snafus that happened this round, but I'm here with Megan Rosansky, who is the co-founder and the CEO of Mind and Match. How are you, Megan? Thank you for traveling. Good to see you. Doing great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, so we're going to talk about, I think, mental health, behavioral health, those type of things, but I want to lean on you real quick to position what is today's episode going to be fully about before we get your bio? Yeah, so we're Mind and Match, and we are building a direct contracting network of mental health professionals across the country so that we can match anyone anywhere with their best fit mental health professional. Okay. Well, so mental health, we're going to get into kind of the why, why you think the self-funded sector might be the most appropriate, why why are we looking at direct contracting, all those fun things. Uh, but I'd like to get have the audience get a chance to get to know you. We've covered coffee, and then you hung out with me an extra hour, which I forgot to book the studio. That's my fault. Um, but Megan, Tell me about, you know, where you grew up, uh, went to school, all the, that fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in San Diego, Southern California, so I will always be a California girl at heart, but went to school on the East Coast and uh, kind of spent most of my adult life out there ever since. I went to Duke University for undergrad, studied public policy, really thought I was going to be a civil servant, work in the government. I've always been very mission oriented, so I was really drawn to public service, but after interning in DC for a couple summers at the Department of State, I was like, you know, government moves pretty slowly. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to better understand how the private sector would make some decisions that I saw in the government. What, so what drew you to, do you have anybody in your family that uh, operates in the public life? Or, you know, that's, I'm curious about the track there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think it was just always growing up, like I realized I was very blessed to grow up in Southern California, but recognized that there were a lot of larger issues in the world and was thinking about how could I make an impact on that with my life and education education and careers. So I um, was really interested in foreign policy and public diplomacy, how we kind of shape narratives around the world or um, perceptions of the U.S. even, mm -hmm. you know, in a non-military sense. And so that was a lot of the work I did at the State Department. What did you think you wanted to do within the realm of public policy that you were going to effectuate there? Yeah, I really thought for a while about being um, a public diplomacy or public affairs officer, like okay. going into the foreign service and traveling the world um, or going into the civil service and like working as, um, you know, a country liaison or lead within the State Department. But okay. um, yeah, I think I was just really struck by after interning in DC about, you know, there's a lot of funding that's being put into these programs. And I was curious about how the government would measure ROI on those mm -hmm. and was like, would be curious to learn how the private sector thinks about that. How do you make decisions yeah. about build versus buy, for example? Was it a running towards the private sector or a little running away from the public <laughs> sector or both? I think both, but more running towards the private okay, sector, fair like okay. wanting to like round out my background. I'd been very focused on policy and didn't understand a lot about business. So I went to work at McKinsey and Company right after college and lived in Atlanta, then DC, then Boston, went to California and 
uh, did grad school at Stanford where I got my MBA and then just moved back to Boston. So I feel like the last decade of life I've been bouncing around. Yeah, a lot, I mean, you've covered all four corners of the, the country. So McKinsey, I wanted to spend just a second on that because I've had some folks on here before that have yeah. uh, been McKinsey folks. And I realize that's a very specialized lifestyle and career path and very intense with a lot of travel. So did you love it uh, first and foremost? Yeah, okay. I loved it for like the phase of life it was. I was like fresh out of college, traveled Monday to Thursday every week and like loved being on the road, being able to see different parts of the country, serve clients all over. Um, it definitely got draining over time. Yeah, and I think to, I was yeah. seeking a little more balance in my lifestyle. And so um, was looking to ramp down travel and also just own more of what I was doing. Yeah. You know, as a consultant, you're advising clients, but you don't ultimately have ownership over the end product. Sure, and sure. I was really you know, craving that and having, well, especially that I'm sure you saw some really massive problems within these organizations, or at least helped and participated in that. And then you go, well, I fixed it for them. And now I just go on to do it for somebody else. Right. Why not maybe do it for myself? Uh, yeah. Totally. Okay. So how did you end up at Stanford though? Out of curiosity? Yeah. So I, um, you know, had worked at McKinsey, did work with like fortune 500 companies and then ultimately boomeranged back to consulting for public sector organizations. So right back in DC, mm. Um, and kind of this time looking at it from the outside in and just, again, was really struck by how fast technology was developing outside of the government. Meanwhile, we were talking with public agencies about how do you migrate from on-prem to the cloud? And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, like this is so far away from where AI and machine learning is. Yeah. So I was really more drawn to the startup world and understanding how really innovative, smaller companies were trying to break into the government and the impact they could have with technology they developed in the private sector. Um, so going to business school for me was my first foray into the startup ecosystem and mm -hmm. understanding more about what does it look like to take an idea from zero to one and then actually grow that into a successful business? When Stanford kind of specializes that, right? I've, I've had, exactly. I've, I think you're probably the second or third Stanford grad I've had on. And it sounds like they sort of help attract burgeoning entrepreneurs, but sort of curate the skill set required to do that. So is that why you picked Stanford? Yeah, definitely. Okay. That was the main draw for me, like knowing that I wanted to get exposure to earlier stage companies, figure out what industry I was most drawn to. You know, I wasn't sure I wanted to spend the rest of my life in defense tech or, you know, national security and defense. And so going to business school was kind of my chance to take a step back and really think about what is it that is really getting me up in the morning? What is a problem I would be like fired up about solving every day? Mm -hmm. um, and, and having the space and time at business school to reflect on my own journey, that's really when I realized like mental health was the biggest part of my life over that decade. Mm -hmm. And I was really, you know, passionate about fixing some of the challenges that I encountered um, that I realized were systemic and not just unique to me. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a very common through line. I've had dozens of entrepreneurs at this point on the podcast. And what I've discovered is a majority of them, like yourself, seem to be solving a problem for themselves simultaneously to realizing there's a market or there's a, a bigger need for that outside of themselves. And they go, oh, this is a business, right? Yeah. So whether they intentionally chose that path to create a business or it sort of pulled them into it, um, they were starting with their own problem and then started to scale it from there and realize there's an application well beyond themselves. Like, I guess that rings true for you as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think just reflecting on, you know, my own lived experience and working through, you know, my story when it comes to mental health is I, experienced sexual assault in college and that was a really difficult experience obviously but didn't really start seeking treatment for it until years afterwards okay. and so had been on you know 
trying to find a good fit therapist who understood my needs while moving, you know, between North Carolina, Atlanta, DC, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, it meant that I had to find a new therapist every time I moved. And so I couldn't get that continuity of treatment. And even though I had some of the best benefits at the time through McKinsey, I just still struggled to find a good fit clinician who took my insurance, understood my Mm. needs, all that. And really thought that was just a personal issue. Like, oh, I must just be too picky. But when I kind of stopped and looked back, I was like, no, like this really is just a difficult process to find a good fit therapist, even though there's great research out there about what makes a good fit. So um, was just really had this idea of, could we build a better, different search experience that's, you know, feels more like a Netflix or TikTok that recommends something to you as opposed to, calling down a directory to find right, someone. Right, phone book or Google. I mean, Google at this point. Well, the government's probably still using phone books to, yeah. <laughs> to create that directory. But uh, one, first, uh, I'm very sorry to, to hear that um, yeah. story. Um, I'm curious, what was your perception of mental health maybe prior to that event and then after? Did you ever seek uh, care prior or for any other reason? Or Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. Yeah, you know, honestly, I think like many trauma survivors, I just suppressed it for a very long time and then, you know, was at work and started experiencing what I thought were anxiety attacks about like the stress related work and came out later to learn that they were really more like PTSD, like flashbacks that I was experiencing. And they got to the point where they were pretty debilitating. And I was just kind of realized like, okay, this is at a point where I need to seek out treatment and help. Um, But that was a very hard conversation to have with a manager about like why I needed to take time for therapy without disclosing too much. So it, uh, was a very difficult time, but I'm extremely grateful to managers I had who made time for that. And I think that's why I'm really passionate about mental health at work, having lived that myself and, you know, wanted to be able to stay in the workforce, not take medical Mm. leave, build, you know, space for me seeking treatment in the middle of my work week without having to step away entirely. Um, so I'm very grateful to folks who allowed me to make room for that. Yeah, so it's it, it's amazing. I mean, just the, the taking something that's as painful as that and then recognizing that there might be a way to transform that into the world and then give back to other people, either whether a similar experience or a relatable experience, but solving a need. Um, and this is a mission. You know, we use, we talk about a mission at our company today. It's clear you have a mission. Um, some people's their why is not as substantial as that, but, you know, I think it un- probably undergirds what you're going to do for the world. Um, and so I applaud you for turning that around and, and taking the power back that way. When did you uh, meet your co-founder? It was, a, what was her, her name again? Aditi. Aditi. Okay. So Aditi, when did you meet your co-founder at Stanford? Correct? Yeah, we met okay. at Stanford. And to your point earlier about how it brings together entrepreneurs, like Stanford just has this phenomenal program where they bring together people across programs to 
essentially like work on a startup and they kind of walk through like, what does it look like to do customer discovery, build a go-to-market, get out and test it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we met actually through that class, both realized that we shared passion or had similar experiences and a shared passion for impacting access to mental health and wanted to build a better search experience, like I said. And she had a background in computer science, was finishing her master's with a concentration on AI and machine learning. So she is total technical genius. <laughs> I cannot understand half of what she does, but we had this vision of, you know, creating a Netflix like recommendation engine based on existing research to actually say, you know, based on my preferences and needs, this mm-hmm. is, you know, my best fit therapist, which research shows that the therapeutic alliance is as important to outcomes in therapy as whatever the modality is, whether it's, I, I have, I have no doubt. Right? Yeah. Um, we were just talking about off camera, like in my desire to, if I could apply that same matching uh, algorithm to a primary care physician, cause I have a very special set of criteria I would look for in a pri- primary care physician. I can see, you know, it's almost like you mentioned Netflix, Spotify has a very amazing totally. algorithm. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer, right? I used to I think, Oh algorithm. no, you trust, you have a trusted buddy and you exchange uh, bands and like, oh, if you like that one, you'll like this one. Spotify has me down to a T. They probably know more about my musical tastes than anybody in the world. Uh, Similar premise, right? To be able to take that criteria selection, your choice, uh, maybe even choices that we don't realize we're making consciously, unconsciously, the algorithm likely, I'm sure, can pick that up, right? Definitely. Um, super cool, though. But I love the balance between you co-founders when it's not a solopreneur, but it's it's a partnership. These co-founders tend to have separate skill sets that stand alone. But then when you combine them together, that's where the business comes from. So yeah. you, do you take and communicate what needs you have and then you communicate it to her and she goes and comes up yeah. with it on well, screen? I right? feel super grateful. You know, it's rare, I think, in a technical co-founder to have someone like a DD who truly just like understands the business fundamentals and how to, you know, how we make strategic decisions. She was, um, I think a speech and debate champion in high school. And so she like, she could give the pitch without me there. And so I feel super grateful to just have like a true thought partner who also, you know, leads all the technical, uh, side of the equation. And obviously she carries, more of the lift on that end since I'm non-technical. But um, I do think our complementary skill sets mean that we're able to both build a really unique product and technology that will differentiate our platform and experience along with, you know, understanding where do we fit into the broader healthcare landscape and how do we, you know, build a sustainable business. Well, when did you guys, was it in a classroom setting or when did you discover that this actually is a business that we want to lean into and build? Yeah. Because it's one thing to have an idea over drinks or coffee or whatever. It's another thing to go like, we're going to do this now, right? So what did that look like? So we really started with, you know, this pain point that I mentioned around, you know, right now the process of finding a therapist means you go on your insurance portal, you're looking at a list of therapists that are in network. You start calling them, emailing them. You might leave voicemails for one person, send an email to another, hear back from two out of five you contact and one of them is no longer taking patients and the mm-hmm. other one doesn't accept your insurance anymore. Yeah. Yep. And so it just creates so much burden for the individual. And so we, you know, did hundreds of interviews with folks largely who were, you know, Gen Z millennials to understand, you know, what would, what does the process look like today? What would you want it to look like in the future? And then, um, went out and actually, you know, sourced a lot of existing research around what contributes to fit and created this like MVP prototype mm. that people really liked. Um, and we got so really- minimum viable product. I know and I come from yeah. that world too, so I know what you mean, but MVP, but minimum viable product. So yeah. it's like the bare bones minimum that a business could be built. Upon, yeah. Right. Yeah. And we just realized like we were 
both, you know, having a lot of fun together and really saw a lot of opportunity to change this experience of searching for a therapist so that, you know, we wanted to build something that we wished we had when we were going through difficult times. Mm. And that was really the impetus for building Mind and Match. So after graduation, we joined the Neo Accelerator, which provided us with our first, you know, venture capital financing and really decided to pursue it full time. So Aditi walked away from a full time job offer at Google to come work on this with me. And I walked away from other full time offers, but we were just so excited about, you know, the potential to impact people's lives and make this experience easier. Um, So Neo, you said was kind of like a I don't want to say a smaller version of Y Combinator, but the cohorts, the class sizes, if you will, were smaller. Yeah, yeah, they serve a similar role where they're an accelerator. They help, you know, guide businesses through that, like zero, not even zero to one, like zero to 0.5 is okay. what I say. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. But they had just a phenomenal community of mentors, technical leaders, um, former operators who had kind of walked this path and could help advise us on you know, this is how we thought about product at this point in our journey. This is how you might think about it. This is when we thought about shifting our go-to-market. Um, so they've been a phenomenal resource, and the cohort is a fantastic community to be part of. So I'm super and it was only 20, right? I think I heard you say over coffee. Just yeah. Like, we I mean, were, that's a pretty small-knit group. So, like, the selection process is pretty stringent or what? Yeah. I mean, they ended up, like, opening up an extra spot for us. So I think we were the 21st company, okay. their first okay. cohort. Because um, you guys had such a great idea? Or what, what was it? Uh, you you know? know, I mean, I don't want to brag. I think they saw a lot of potential in the idea and in us and was very grateful to them for doing that um, and taking a chance on us. Like that's ultimately a, that's what an investor does, right? Yeah, that's cool. So so um, when, when was this? Was that 2020? You said summer or 2022? Uh, 2022. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. So then then they sort of build you up and then they say, go out and go yeah, succeed, right? Or, totally. And I mean, there were a lot of pivots along the way, but I'd say, you know, fast forwarding mind and match, you know, launched really in April as a direct to consumer marketplace. And so we envisioned it as a better version of psychology today where independent mental health professionals could list their profiles. Individuals would come to the site and go through our onboarding form and we would match them to their best fit therapist. And we would take into account, you know, logistical pieces like insurance and scheduling to make sure that someone was available and affordable, but also, different preferences, um, largely informed by the research of Dr. John Norcross, who's an advisor to us that we work very, very closely with. Um, and he's published for decades around how to personalize therapy to the patient. And that his research has really formed the basis of our matching algorithm to date. Um, and so we've taken a lot of his work from, you know, academia or clinical settings where it's, you know, a one-to-one conversation between you and a therapist to kind of bring that, you know, into a digital setting and make it more, consumer friendly and, you know, able something that an individual is able to go through on their own. Well, so what is it in your opinion, not even your opinion, but the evidence suggests as well, why the match is so the fit is so important, right? Because I don't think we're trying to solve for a lack of proficiency or skill as a, a therapist or a psychiatrist, but it's like, is this person right for me as a patient and vice versa? Am I the right type of patient for that physician? So what is it? Why is that like kind of the biggest crux that you're solving for? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's, really interesting because if you look at the data, you know, 50% of people churn by their third visit with a therapist. So half of people people don't make it to the third visit. Um, And we know that's largely driven by, you know, both cost and that fit. But most people need a minimum of 12 evidence-based sessions to actually see meaningful progress. So we really believe that, you know, 
better matching and better fit leads to better outcomes, which would be what research suggests. A lot of Dr. Norcross's research is around the role of preferences in that as well. You know, how do you also take into account an individual's preferences for a therapist who, you know, understands their unique needs or preferences Mm -hmm. related to their therapist's gender or cultural background or even, you know, more general questions like, do you prefer a therapist who will be more directive or allow you to take the lead? Um, And a lot of our users have told us, like, those were questions they'd never been asked before and never thought about. But once asked, they said, oh, yeah, I really do better when I have homework between sessions. Mm -hmm. And that is something I would really want to seek out. Um, And so we just apply some more structure to that process to pull out those strong preferences and incorporate that into well, the how match. many of those data points or criteria are we selecting like so right now the algorithm includes 24 okay. academically validated features so we kind of compile all of those i pieces. won't make you rattle them all, all i won't go at all the general categories are like your presenting concern or needs um your preferences for what it feels like in the session so like okay. i mentioned directiveness is one openness to homework is another whether you prefer to p- focus on the past and the past or, you know, planning for the future or present even. Um, the third big category is around the therapist characteristics. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned, like, yeah, physical, like demographic style. Yeah, characteristics. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then scheduling and finances as well. Is there one though that you think most people immediately go, uh, I want a male or a female or, you know, something to that effect? You know, or? it's really interesting. I do think, um, Gender and racial or ethnic background are the two most frequently requested preferences that we see in the platform. And Dr. Norcross has shared that that's, you know, backed up in his research as well, that that's most frequently requested. And Mm -hmm. I think the really interesting, interesting component is even just asking about someone's preferences has actually, you know, been shown to increase patient satisfaction and the degree that they feel the process is personalized to them. Um, which is really significant if someone is Mm -hmm. starting to take that first step to seek treatment that they feel that they're going through a process in which they will be seen and understood and cared for. And it's well, I could think, yeah, if I I responded to a question and say, I don't really care about that particular criteria, the fact that you're even asking me that I would appreciate. Right. Um, definitely. And then, so that way you feel like, Hey, at the, at the, by the time I sit down with somebody, whether it's virtually or, or in person that, this person I think I can connect with because I think that's probably one of the biggest things they're seeking out is some connection and somebody that yeah. understands and listens to them but also might be able to empathize or relate to their situation as yeah, well. Definitely. Yeah. It's just the knowledge that this person, you know, meets my preferences and even understands my needs. Part of our platform today, we actually send a summary of an individual's preferences to their therapist ahead of time. And so okay. that therapist has access to all this information about what someone would really strongly like or dislike in a therapist and then can ask questions like, why is gender important to you? And that just creates so much interesting fodder for, mm-hmm. you know, an intake visit that goes beyond, you know, tell me why you're here. Have you been in therapy before? Like we kind of have all that information there. I know in my experience, it was always kind of frustrating to get to a new therapy intake and have to kind of rehash everything like okay this is not the third therapist I've seen because I've moved three times in the last three years and so so there is no continuum or for like the the medical records themselves um between those not certainly not that I have seen and I think that's largely because you know I believe the APA says 45 percent of psychologists are an independent practice and so there's no kind of like standard of record keeping that you could share um But I do think another main issue is, you know, state licensing laws have historically prevented 
practitioners or clinicians from practicing across state lines. So that's why in my experience, I, you know, had to find a new therapist when I moved to mm -hmm. a new state because I couldn't continue working with my prior therapist, even though I had, you know, I had an amazing therapist in DC who I just like really felt like I made so much progress with. But when I moved to Boston, couldn't continue working with them. Okay. Um, and so that's another thing that we're really excited about at Mind and Match is how the future of interstate compacts actually could really improve continuity of care yeah. as we see, you know, there's now a psychologist compact in place in 40 states that allows psychologists to practice across well, all Well, define that for us, so states. compact. Uh, I haven't heard that terminology utilized. I think regulation or rules, but yeah. what's a compact mean in this circumstance? So a compact, it's a really fascinating piece of legislation. This is where you'll see the policy geek. And oh, yeah, yeah, out. you're going to explain it very um, thoroughly and well, I yeah, assume, as well. But yeah, it's yeah. almost the same way that you know, a dri your driver's license is acknowledged in other states when you, you know, cross the border. It's a way of just acknowledging the rest. I don't want to say reciprocity because that's the wrong term, but, um, you know, just the ability for that to transfer and okay. be, uh, you're essentially say I'm authorized to drive in this state. The psychology compact just has put in place a mechanism for psychologists to apply for an authorization that has a number attached to it, has a vetting process. Mm. It's very rigorous. Um, and once approved, it says I am essentially I'm authorized or able to practice teletherapy across any of these member states from my home state that I'm in. And this is a, in. this compact is new, correct? Yeah. So it was enact really went live in 2020 is when they first started accepting applications. The interesting thing is that it was separate and distinct from COVID year waivers. I was going to ask, did it predate or okay? Predated. Yeah. It had been in development for years prior um, and just really kind of achieved like the legislative hurdles it needed to. And then since then has been enacted, you know, in individual state legislatures of 40 states. And okay. to date, over 10,000 psychologists have applied for and received this authorization. It's a little over 10% of all psychologists. So there's so a those lot numbers of again, You said 10,000? 10,000. 10, and that, that's 10%. So there's 100,000 total? About 105,000, yeah. Okay, okay. Estimates vary. But. And why only 40 states? I, I know some people are thinking that. You know, it's really interesting. I think there's been, you know, psychology is not the first occupational category to create a compact. There's similar compacts in place for nurses and physical therapists. Um, I think there's a growing recognition that interstate compacts can really help alleviate some of the provider shortages we mm -hmm. see across the country, especially mm -hmm. in mental and behavioral health. And so I think, you know, 40 is actually huge and I think there will continue to be momentum there and more states will join on. Um, but it, it does come down to the individual state legislatures enacting this. So there's okay. a lot of advocacy work that the compact and other relevant bodies have to do to kind of push for this legislation. Well, to me, at least this particular specialty makes sense to be able to transfer across uh, state lines, especially telephonically or virtually, however you want to frame it. A physical therapist, you know, that still is predicated on that person showing up you know, in person physically, right? Yeah. This makes sense. So I'm curious, why do you think it took so long for the compact to arise? PlanSight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance brokerage. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part? PlanSight supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSight. Visit PlanSight.com now 
to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, one silver lining of COVID would be that acceptance of teletherapy has really grown yeah. in the provider community, um, at least in our work and in conversations and interviews with psychologists. We've heard many of them tell us, you know, my practice is now hybrid or entirely virtual, and it allows me so much more flexibility where I can set my hours, pick up my children, I don't have to pay for office space. And so, you know, like I mentioned, given nearly half of all psychologists operate in independent private practice, um, it really just enables them to expand that. Um, and also, you know, kind of work with a different population. You know, yeah. if you're serving a broader uh, segment of the geographic population, you could really specialize your craft and focus on a particular niche, whether that's a population you're passionate about serving or a diagnostic area. One of the advisors we work with really has a passion for financial therapy. Okay. But in the kind of suburban area he's located, that's not a big enough catchment area. And so this compact allows him to essentially market himself more broadly and could actually build a full practice around that. Um, but right now it's very difficult to, uh, you know, actually communicate that niche mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. different platforms. And so Mind and Match was really developed as a way to help connect clinicians who have this ability to practice across state lines with patients across the country as this marketplace model I mentioned. Well, that, that brings to mind, I was telling you over coffee that I had uh, the CMO of um, Hint Connect uh, yeah. on, and they do DPC. Similarly, though, their job is trying to connect the patient need with the direct primary care physician. And if there isn't enough of a cohort of a population in a certain location for that one employer to fill the whole need or that direct primary care physician is starting to try to build their um, panel, but need a pipeline, right? Yeah, um, they're definitely. kind of doing that. It sounds like at least from the outcomes perspective, that's what you also are trying to do yeah. for, for therapists and, and the like. Um, I love it, right? I think it makes a ton of sense couple places to go. My mind's sort of racing of what to ask you next. I'm going to pull a, ask you to confirm a stat first because I think it's yeah. interesting. And then I want to dig into mind and match the user experience. I think that'll be really interesting to go to. But you told me the average person, it takes them 11 years from when they have some sort of event or I don't know what you, maybe you can describe it better before they actually seek care. So what is yeah. that stat? From you know? symptom onset to symptom treatment, onset. it's okay. on average 11 years um, okay. and is kind of tr not that has trended consistently over the last decade. Why do you so. think it takes people a decade to seek care? You know, I think a couple of things, one being stigma. I think okay. fortunately we're now talking about mental health more openly. So I do think that stigma is shifting, but um, in a patchwork way, I don't think in every industry or every employer setting folks are as open to talking about mental health. Um, certainly like where I live in Boston, it's like very, and in the tech community, I think it's more acknowledged and accepted to talk openly about mental okay. health. So I have felt very comfortable doing that. Um, but I recognize not everyone does for fear of discrimination or that it'll reflect poorly upon your performance, mm -hmm. which unfortunately, like studies do show, we still have bias against it. So I think that's one. I think the second would just be access challenges. And okay. like I mentioned, you know, there are, the majority of Americans live in what's designated as a mental health professional shortage area. Okay. And so we do struggle with connecting people to care. Um, and I think that's where, you know, between stigma and access challenges, that's really meant that folks will say, oh, I'll just wait until it gets bad enough. Mm. But I think we're now at a point where we're rec we as a society are recognizing we can't wait until it gets bad enough. Mm -hmm. And how do we get people into care sooner? When is the shortage a result of a not enough doctors or is the shortage a result of the geography constraints or both? 
You know, I would say it's both. And I think okay. it depends on like which category of clinician we talk mm -hmm. about. Um, yeah, delineate know. psychiatrists and psychologists for me. Yeah, so psychiatrists are MDs. They have gone to medical school, res you know, completed residency, have a specialty in psychiatry. Okay. Um, and they are able to prescribe medication to individuals. Psychologists are PhDs or PsyDs in clinical psychology. Um, so they have also had extensive training and are licensed by their state psychology boards. Um, but they but cannot they, prescribe. Medication. There are some states now that are moving into that, but okay. for the most part, not, you know, a psychologist typically cannot prescribe, you know, SSRIs or other controlled substances. Okay. But then in terms of like, if there's 105,000 total, right, which yeah. you know, is roughly 20, was that 2000 per state? I'll do my math real quick. Um, yeah. Then if I'm in certain areas of the country, though, there's a much higher likelihood that I have enough of a pool to access, but I might be in a very rural area in a rural state where that may not be the case, right? So yeah. then geography becomes an issue. Correct? Definitely. Okay. And I think that's where, like, when, you know, you look at the data, like the Southeast, for example, has the greatest shortage of mental health professionals or psychologists. And so the impact of compacts, I think, is really compelling when we think about how that could, you know, close some of those gaps. We won't be able to completely resolve the shortage of mental health professionals in the country. But, you know, when I did the analysis across states that are part of the psychology compact, we could actually close that gap by 65%, which is huge. Okay. And so that's where I get really excited about how do we, you know, I really believe this is the future of teletherapy and that the future will be practitioners practicing in an interstate capacity. Mm -hmm. How do we then enable that at scale? And right now the system is not set up to enable that. And that's well, what I, we're trying to meet. The I need was going to say, but going back to DPC too, the corollary I see there is the fact that DPC is solving for the physician side where their quality of life is suffering and we're not attracting enough people to primary care in the first place. Maybe you guys could have a similar impact. Yeah. Yeah, maybe there are some limitations to the current model, but if you guys take away some of those constraints, now this does seem like a profession that somebody would want to go to because I'm connected with the right patients because I'm seeing progress and my, I'm fulfilled as a clinician as yeah. well. I could see you guys having that kind of impact. Totally. And I like to say, you know, like the dirty little secret is that therapists have their favorite clients too, you know, whether oh, yeah. it's yeah. like a particular area they want to specialize in or a population that they identify with and really care about serving. Um, you know, I, we work very closely with an advisor who specializes working with Latinx and BIPOC individuals. And so if she is able to expand her catchment area to exclusively focus on that yeah. population, like what a gift that is. To yeah. Why not? If there's a demand, both sides of the equation, why not? Right. I think you're, again, yeah. you're, if you're taking away geography as the limiting factor, then all of a sudden people have access to the pool they want to work with. And then I, as a patient, have access to a doctor yeah. I want to work with. Everybody's happier as a yeah. result of that. The challenge we found is that there just hasn't really, the systems haven't been put in place or the structure hasn't been put in place to allow clinicians to get you know, reimbursed for that. Right now, commercial payers don't recognize this authorization. They don't? No. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's some efforts to educate payers and, you know, the bucas of the world of the world about what this authorization means. CMS has come out and basically said, hey, compact authorizations are full, equal to full licenses. Okay. And so that has come from the federal government. I think there's just a slower, slower adoption. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's move into mind and match the specific solution, kind of the interface itself, maybe the patient experience, obviously direct contracting is a, a component of this as well. So like if I, I think you, maybe we start with, you started as direct to consumer, you still yep. have direct consumer solution, but you realize, Hey, there's some challenges there. Now we're morphing into sort of employer focus. Talk to me about that. Real yeah. Quick. yeah. So I mentioned we launched this direct to consumer marketplace 
but, and we saw that, you know, this message around finding your best fit therapist was really resonating. We saw really high click through rates, really high conversion from click to sign up. Folks were, you know, really drawn to the platform and both on the therapist and patient side. But as we got to the bottom of the funnel, we saw that cost was really the biggest determinant of whether someone would even contact a therapist, much less start treatment. And so if you could pay over a hundred dollars a session cash, a patient was three times as likely to contact a therapist, which we know is not what the majority of Americans yeah, can hundred dollars per session. Yeah. I mean, maybe weekly or how, yeah. how often would a, an average meeting, meeting cadence be? I mean, it's hard you to know, say. You know, let's say right? weekly okay. and it's 150 to $200 an hour, you know, like that's it's just a car payment. Every yeah, month, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we were really thinking, you know, we quickly came to the realization, like, you know, to service a broader segment of the population, we will need to do something to bring down this cost of care. Um, but we see that partially because of the reimbursement challenges I mentioned, you know, 60% of the largely psychologists on Mind and Match don't take insurance at all. Okay. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, but um, we knew that this was a, you know, segment of psychologists who had capacity for new patients. We, it wasn't, you know, a challenge with supply. It was actually just matching up the reimbursement model with what patients were looking to use since most people want to use benefits to offset the cost of therapy. And so, you know, recognizing that commercial payers wouldn't recognize this compact authorization, we were thinking to ourselves like, okay, who are the other payers in Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the healthcare ecosystem in America that we could look at? And really looking at, you know, self-funded employers, we realized that's a population that really sees the impact of delayed mental health care in terms of employee productivity and retention and is motivated to increase access to care. Um, So we essentially pitched this idea of a direct contracting model. Like what if we took all of this capacity that's currently going underutilized and just brought it directly to employers and said, hey, we'll facilitate these contracts, you know, with these clinicians who want to serve your members if we can, you know, come to a pre-negotiated rate. And that's been really resonating. Well, I'll say first, that's a brilliant insight. I'm curious though, how you came to be introduced to self-funding and direct contracting. I mean, yeah. like how did that happen? A lot of research. I think I, you know, I would say, I don't think a lot of the like venture backed ecosystem really understands self-funding. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, like I think of, you know, the payers in the healthcare system as the bucas and I was honestly surprised to learn that 57% of non-elderly Americans get their insurance through their employer and two thirds of that is self-funded. Yep, yep. And so that was just really interesting to then dive more into, well, what are the entities that then support self-funding? You know, there's obviously the TPA and advisors and consultant community and then stop loss. There's this whole industry to support mm-hmm. this. Um, which is one of the few areas of healthcare, I think, where incentives are aligned, right? I, well, yeah, you're telling me. Like, I know, I, I'm I agree. preaching to the choir You are literally here. preaching to the choir. I mean, uh, obviously, but yeah. th- it is uh, this rare confluence of like all of the pieces, if you set it up correctly, actually have the same goals. Um, yeah. There's not sort of this tension between some of the parties. Um, again, if it's set up correctly, right, and you have independent players within that realm. And so they, this just seems like a natural extension of that. What about the direct contracting language and things like that? Because that's difficult to probably craft. So um, how did you guys come up with how to apply that? You know, we were just doing some customer discovery with third-party administrators and really trying to understand, you know, what is your approach to behavioral health today? And we kept hearing over and over again that folks were you know, they knew the mental health or behavioral health journey wasn't great, but they Mm -hmm. were struggling with how to actually increase access. They could add on and 
employee assistance program for near-term or short-term support. But if a member actually, you know, had a need or wanted more like 12 to plus sessions, they would be referred back to their plan and go back to their network options. But administrators told us they were really frustrated with the quality of network options out okay. there. And that's largely because, like I mentioned before, a lot of therapists have just opted out of taking insurance entirely. Um, and so they were telling us, you know, we're going out and contracting on a one by one basis with individual therapists in certain markets, but that's really difficult to replicate at scale. And we were kind of looking at ourselves like, okay, we know psychologists across the country who want to expand their, you know, caseload are looking to take on new patients. And there are these entities that are looking for newer, better network options mm -hmm. to bring to their clients, how could we marry these together? And so that's where we kind of landed on this direct contracting model. When, how did you end up initially getting in touch with the third party administrator? Cause that does, now that you've described it all for me, it's taken me a little bit of a while. I'm a little slow. Yeah. I'm going, that makes sense, right? The TPA really does make sense as the, either whether it's a strategic partnership or the distribution channel itself. Yeah. But how did you get first in touch with the TPA to have these discussions? You know, a mix of like cold outreach to people and okay. just trying to understand. Did you know what a TPA was to start? No, okay. no okay. not at all. I mean, I showed up at the HCAA TPA summit by myself. It was just walking around like, so what is it that you do? How do you approach behavioral <laughs> health benefits? That's you know, awesome. it was a crash course in like how self-funding works. Yeah. Um, but, you know, listen to your podcast, learned a lot about how people think about choosing benefits, the role of administrators, mm -hmm. um, and just was really you know, intrigued by how employers really are looking to their administrators to help them decide, like, what should the strategy look like? What networks do we go with? Um, so I would say it was just a mix of, you know, cold outreach and just having as many conversations. Well, as I can could. tell you that mental health, behavioral health is a category we're exploring uh, pretty considerably, um, recognizing its impact on not just mental health alone, but the physical components of that, right? Yeah. You know, the development of chronic diseases and illnesses where it manifests physically as well. It's something that we at Pareto are exploring too. Um, probably talk later about that. Um, but I'm curious though, if we now apply it within the kind of the setting of a claim, you know, claims outcome and a cost, can you help me sort of quantify its impact to a plan? Yeah. So there isn't you know, great data out there yet okay. on what this actually does. I think there is research that shows that individuals who have a mental health diagnosis do have, you know, higher prevalence of comorbidities, whether mm -hmm. that's blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular challenges. And so ultimately that we know that increases total cost of care. Yeah. And so our thesis at Mind and Match is that better matching leads to better retention and care, which leads to better outcomes and ultimately drives down total cost of care. And I think we've spoken with some plan administrators who have seen this when they've expanded in-network access mm -hmm. to mental health benefits um, and really made it as easy as possible for individuals to seek out care through plan design, whether that's, you know, eliminating copays or reducing yeah. other barriers. Um, they've really shifted the mix more towards outpatient mental health care and away from the more, you know, expensive, costly, you know, dangerous not well, we haven't even addressed that, but I presume obviously this can help bring the total cost down, right? Not necessarily who's paying for it, which the employer through that direct contracting would be the payer, but like, does it, because it's not required to be in office, I don't know what other expenses and overheads related, is it, is it less expensive uh, to deliver as well, or maybe not? Yeah. I mean, it's from the clinician standpoint, it certainly is, you yeah. know, not paying for office space. I think there's continued conversation around what does parity look like in terms mm -hmm. of telehealth versus in-person reimbursement. Like my perspective 
personally would be, I'd like to see that continue to be, you know, at parity that telehealth is a, you know, accepted modality that has been shown to be as effective as in-person therapy for the majority of mental health diagnoses. Um, so we should treat it as such. And so I think ultimately it comes down to an individual's preference yeah. and that's what we should be seeking to accommodate. When I certainly don't want to suggest that we need to drive down the cost so much that the therapists aren't totally. making a living that they need to make. Right. I just thinking like everything that we do from a telehealth or a virtual perspective um, eliminate some of like the, the physical output. You know, I'm thinking about, I don't have to hop on a plane. I don't have to drive totally. my car. I don't have to go on the toll road. I don't have to bring food. I mean, like yeah. from a, an employer perspective, the cost of me conducting a meeting in oh, person totally. versus, you know, virtually is night and day. Um, as long as the outcomes are still optimized, yeah, right? And I, I don't definitely. think you're ever suggesting that the, somehow I'm getting a compromised level of care. ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was going to be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. Yeah, 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 certainly. And I mean, I think it's really interesting. So there was a really fascinating Kaiser Family Foundation survey that came out about employee use of benefits. And in the last year, this was in 2022, you know, 46% of those who said, you know, self-described as in fair or poor mental health said they couldn't get mental health care, even under employer-sponsored benefits, as really? opposed to 12% of those who said they had good mental health. So clearly there's, you know, a gap there with folks who really need care aren't yeah. getting it. And when the survey then, you know, asked why, the top three reasons were not being able to take time off of work or from school, yep. um, not finding a provider they trusted, and the cost of care. Yep. You know, which I would have expected cost of care to be number one. And you it know, wasn't. most frequent, okay, and so it was, it was not. Third. Okay. It, you know, those were the top three, but it actually came in third. And so that was really an interesting insight, hmm. you know, where telehealth can really reduce the time required to travel to a doctor's office, go to the appointment in person. You know, if you're working from home, you could take it from home and be online in another hour. Obviously, it's a little jarring, but it's doable. Yeah. Um, and then as far as finding a provider you trust, like that's really what we're trying to optimize for at Mind and Match is really moving beyond just like, you know, what I like to call telehealth 1.0 of here's access to a mental health professional on demand available for you when you need it to actually personalize mental health care mm -hmm. um, or what I like to call telehealth 2.0 of how do we actually personalize that to the person and make it really unique to your needs and your preferences. Well, not to mention the telehealth delivery model allows for more immediacy of care, right? Because I think, yeah, obviously, we talked about that stat. It takes 11 years to, to access care from the onset of symptoms, but that's not because I didn't know how to find a, a clinician at that point. However, there are circumstances, right, where I'm, I'm having a panic attack or an anxiety attack or I am really in a crisis state yeah. and I need somebody and I call and it's like, well, we can see in a month, right, or six weeks, right? So this allows that to be immediately in the time of need delivered, correct? Yeah. yeah. And we're, so we're not necessarily right now set up to support like the 24-7 care model, okay. but I think by bringing a new population of cash pay providers into the ecosystem, we can increase the likelihood that you can get into an appointment with in the next, you know, two to seven business mm -hmm. days, let's say, as opposed to having to be scheduled out for a month to find someone who's in network with, you know, your existing. Yeah, so not necessarily crisis solution. care, but hey, 
I've had depression uh, issues in the past. I'm starting to feel it come back on again. I know I should talk to somebody, but I can't wait six or eight weeks, right? Yeah. Um, just again, like reducing that turnaround time to actually access something. Totally. Right. And in so many user interviews we've done with folks, you know, to learn more about like, what is it that led you to like take this step to try out Mind and Match or connect with a therapist? It's like, you know, I just hit this tipping point where I just knew I needed help. Mm -hmm. And we want to just capture as many people in that moment as we can. Um, and if there's any barrier in the way, you know, whether that's, I have to, you know, call 10 different providers and wait 48 hours for them to get back to me or email me back and then track those responses. Those just create more barriers to, yep. you know, ideally, you know, what we're building now is that someone can go onto mind and match see their matches and then book an appointment directly with that person in that moment. And so they know it's scheduled, it's on the calendar. Um, and we're eliminating all of that kind of barrier, all of the barriers that could just dissuade. Well, especially you, you touched that. on earlier. I want to come back to the fact like you can design the plan around, uh, around this too, to incentivize the utilization. I think incentives, right. Are what motivate most people to make certain choices. And if I perceive even uh, you know, a 25 or a $50 copay as an impediment to seek care, I might choose not to based on that expense. If I, as an employer, can offer this at a $0 copay or a $20 copay, anything you can do to drive down that barrier to entry increases the likelihood of utilization. And I think theoretically, you would want this utilization before it got to a really crisis yes, state. Yes, yeah. definitely. And I think that's, you know, ultimately the trade-off. It's like, okay, you'll likely, an employer who's really expanding in network benefits or access may see increased utilization in the short term, but in your overall total cost of care or inpatient or intensive outpatient claims like you should see that go down and we you know obviously are not haven't collected the longitudinal data to yeah, be able to demonstrate yeah, that but yeah. that's where we're trying to go and we want to be able to demonstrate you know over time that we can provide you know better matching leads to better retention better outcomes over time and ultimately connect that to total cost of care. Well, and I, I could continue to ask you a lot of technical questions. I very, I love the the, the execution side and the, yeah. the mechanics behind it. But let's sort of move towards, I guess, the the end of the podcast here. The question I have now is like, in this state of your life cycle, who, what type of customer are you looking for today? Let's maybe speak to a potential customer right yeah. now. Yeah. So our, you know, ideal customer profile would be a third-party administrator who is frustrated with current network options when it comes to mental health access, is looking to bring additional capacity into their networks um, and trying to essentially find a specialty behavioral health network. That's the need we're trying to fill in the near term. Um, and we view, you know, TPAs that serve mid-sized employers, so 200 to 999, as our target demographic that we don't think has been served by existing solutions. And we know that 60% of that employer segment hasn't yet added virtual providers to their networks. So we, you know, again, we see that as evidence that this is an underserved segment. Folks might be, you know, currently, you know, using a stopgap solution mm -hmm. like an EAP program, mm -hmm. but we really view ourselves as something that can integrate with the plan um, and really expand access to care. And I really think this will continue to be more important as there's more dialogue around what enforcement of the Mental Health Parity Act mm -hmm. will look like. That's you know, gotten recent scrutiny and the Biden administration proposed some new rules, um, including, you know, how enforcement under the Department of Labor will look that, okay. you know, the comment period actually just ended today. So ah. I think we will see a lot more focus on parity of in-network access for physical and mental health benefits, which right now is pretty abysmal. Like folks are five times as likely to go out of network to see a mental health professional really? as okay. they are a primary care physician. Huh. 
And so I think that's really where we'll see more focus on not just access to benefits, but in-network access to benefits. And we want to be position ourselves to help support that. Absolutely. And then is there any sort of size limitations or the profile of the employer that matters to you guys? No, I think we're best, you know, equipped to support employers that have, you know, either geographically dispersed members where we can be a singular network that can support all of them or a membership that might be located in a geography that has a particularly acute, you know, mental health provider shortage. Okay. Um, and we can essentially bring this network of psychologists who can practice across state lines to bear in that geography and really bring net new capacity to that system. Is there like a geo access report that you could run for those, you know, yeah. geographies? Okay. We yeah. could do that. Uh, well, so uh, the other side of that, I was going to ask, um, and I wasn't, oh no, we, we've kind of bypassed or at least not specifically discussing like the broker consultant channel. Yeah. Cause I know that's a lot of the audience that listens to this. So you mentioned TPA as a channel distribution partner. Yeah. Where does a broker come into the fold in your mind right now? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we have focused on TPAs to start with, but the broker and consultant community is another one that we're really excited to engage in. We know that they are, you know, active advisors and trusted advisors to many of their employer clients. We have intentionally chosen not to go direct to employer. We just know that in this segment, folks, mm -hmm. you know, probably don't have the capacity to be like yeah. making this decision on their own. And so they're looking to the TPA or consultant or broker to guide them. And so we'd love to, you know, consider this an open invitation to any brokers listening. I'd love to chat and learn more about how your current approach to behavioral health strategy looks and how Mind and Match could help. I love it. So let's, let's land the plane here. What's your moonshot outcome with this? Oh, my moonshot outcome. Yeah. I have yeah. so many ideas, okay, yeah. but I think our vision for the future is that Mind and Match, you know, becomes a go-to, your go-to mental health companion throughout like your entire life as a patient and that you could come back to Mind and Match to really, you know, be recommended the next step in your care journey. And that can persist regardless of whatever employer you might see. So if I were to, you know, be in therapy for six months and then, you know, achieve the outcomes I want, we could then support you with some step down care options like okay. self-guided content. Let's say in two years you wanted to come back to mind and match, you know, or you're like, Hey, I had this event happen. It's bringing up some stuff for me. I want to start therapy, one-to-one -one therapy again. Okay. You could come back to mind and match and ideally work with that same therapist you saw two years ago, um, to really promote that continuity of care. And I think we also have plans to expand into psychiatry so that we can actually truly provide integrated care between psychiatry and psychology, which traditionally have been very bifurcated and there's really? not much okay. coordination between them. So we see a lot of potential to really integrate that into our offering um, while really staying true to our mission to keep this as an in-network benefit. We want it to be, you know, through the plan, integrated with your entire mental health, entire health care, excuse me. Um, so that's really our vision for the future. Yeah. And again, I, I'm sitting here just like, there's so many paths I want to continue to pursue, but I don't want it to make it a two hour podcast and like lose half the audience. Um, what I was going to say though, is I, you know, I would love to see sort of that, um, correlation drawn between the mental health and the physical health side, right? Like, you know, does your primary physician talk to your, yeah, uh, you know, therapist, right. And, and totally. what role does my, exercise output and my nutrition and like yeah. really understand the whole person, I think is what you called it earlier today over a coffee, which I, I would love to explore that channel. But yeah, I, again, we're out of time. But why don't I ask you this? Um, why don't we just sort of closing thoughts, right? Like people have listened for about an hour or so far. I think this is a fascinating conversation. But what yeah. would you want to leave the audience with sort of an open forum? Yeah, I mean, I would just want to leave the audience with just my wholehearted encouragement that I believe we are on a 
positive path in the destigmatization of mental health care. And I think expanding the access to care is a huge part of that, whether that's through bringing new providers into networks or reducing barriers to care in the patient journey. Um, and I think employers have a huge role to play in that. And so um, I'm excited about the future of mental health care in the U.S. I think we're starting to trend in a positive direction. And I think mm-hmm. um, employers who really prioritize it are a big part of continuing that momentum. Yeah, I would agree with you too. This is something I wouldn't have discussed a couple of years ago, not because I didn't want to, I just wasn't a, a topic that was coming up regularly. I can certainly tell you it's coming up all the time right now. So I wish yeah. you the best of luck again. Thank you for traveling. Thanks down. so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, it's probably going on three hours now <laughs> total, uh, but I appreciate you and hopefully we'll have you back in a year or two and we'll do a, a retrospective of how that, that all went. I'd love that. Awesome. That sounds Thank awesome. You.